Yeah, Bill Mulvey sent me a message on Facebook, or somehow he sent me a message, email maybe, and he said, uh, will the men's breakfast be available on audio? <laughs> so I said, if I can remember to hit the button on the recorder, yes. So here it is, Bill. So uh, we, you may recall, you might not because it's been so long, We've been uh, in this study that I've titled One New Man. One New Man is uh, one of the names the New Testament gives for the church, especially in the book of Ephesians. And uh, where uh, Paul also uses the, I hesitate to use the word metaphor, of of the body of Christ. So in Ephesians, you have those kind of interchangeable body, the body of Christ and the one new man. Um, And so this whole course is basically my rendering of uh, theology of the church. In in, uh, seminary, we call this ecclesiology. And if you speak any other language but English, the word ecclesiology would make perfect sense to you. (laughs) Ecclesia is the Greek word for church in the New Testament. And so if you look at almost any European language, the word for church, you can tell is a cognate of the word ecclesia. Iglesia here in Papimento or Spanish. What's the Dutch word for church? Kerk. So we're so we come from them when we call it church, or in Scotland, kirk. Yeah. So I don't know where we got that word, other than it's Germanic in some sense. Wow. Sorry, that was a big distraction. So today we're in the second lesson that is. Related to the metaphor, the, uh, another metaphor the Bible uses. Again, I hesitate to use the word metaphor because I think maybe we are supposed to, in fact, I'm arguing that we should take it more literally and less as a figure of speech. And I think with this particular word, uh, that's especially true when we call the church the family of God. I think we're talking about an actual family, not a metaphorical family. Uh, And so uh, for this one, I'm even more reluctant to call it a metaphor. Um, And all we're doing here in the whole course is, is sort of progressing through these terms that the scripture uses to talk about what the church is. And so last time we talked about the church as the family of God, and we, there's, a, there's a list of references here, and they were on last uh, the, the handout last time, which was in February. <laughs> uh, but I just wanted to read some of these scriptures again so we get the basis for what we're talking about. First um, John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father. Now, right off the bat, we notice God is being called the Father. That's a family term. 
the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. When did the world have an opportunity to know God the Father? In the presence of Christ the Son, Jesus who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The world didn't recognize God in Christ. The world doesn't recognize the Father. This is a big point in the book of 1 John. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. Anyway, I'm wandering. The reason, uh, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So here the scripture is calling us children of God in Romans 8. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you didn't, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So now God's not just our Father, He's our Abba, Father, which is uh, a term of affection. It's the English equivalent of this is dad or daddy or papa, any one of those affectionate terms. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know, I really liked it right up until that last part, but uh, we're, we don't have time to discuss all that. But here again, uh, we've received the Spirit, and the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God, and here it mentions uh, by adoption as sons. Uh, Galatians 4 says pretty much the same thing. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, through God. Paul's making the argument of the privileged position of the believer before God, that we have this status. We're we're no longer uh, slaves in the sense of uh, subject to the law as law, but we are sons under grace. And by the way, in both Romans and Galatians, this is this idea of sonship versus slavery is in the context of relation by grace or by law, law or gospel. 
uh, works or faith. Those, those terms all go together. Slave versus son, law versus gospel, uh, faith, uh, I'm sorry, uh, works versus faith. Okay. So, uh, what's our next text? John 1.12. I, I know this one. I don't have to look it up. Uh, but as many as received him, who trusted themselves to him, he has given the right to be called children of God. John 1.12. And there again, he's, that's in the context of he came... Nobody recognized him, but the people who did received this adoption as sons. <clears throat> Ephesians 1. Ephesians is kind of the go-to text for any discussion of the church. Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Uh, Ephesians 2, 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household or family of God. Um, <clears throat> and in Ephesians, the emphasis is on the unification of all believers into a single church, a single body, the one new man. Uh, in, in Ephesians. Uh, in chapter 3, <coughs> verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, <coughs> Christ. I'm sorry, I'm reading chapter 4. <laughs> no wonder that doesn't say what I needed to say. <coughs> Ephesians 3, uh, 15. From whom, this is typically translated this way, every family in heaven on earth is named. Honestly, I think in the context of the uh, book of Ephesians, it should be translated like this. From whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. It's a reference to the body of Christ, the one new man the whole family of God. Some of the family of God are in heaven. Some of the family of God are on earth. And I think that's what Paul actually has in mind. The Greek word, uh, which I don't remember right off the bat, couldn't be translated either way. It can mean all the families, or it can mean the whole family. And so... Uh, I think in the context of Ephesians, only the whole family really makes sense. So I don't know why they do it this way. You should probably do some study to find out why they do it that way. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that the grace of God so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Wow. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, many what? Sons, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and now he quotes from the Psalms, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing my praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, uh, here Jesus is... Well, I guess you could say it both ways. He's making himself our brother, taking on flesh, subjecting himself to death. And he's making us his brothers. Uh, and he he's, says here he's not ashamed to call you his brother. Um, I don't know if any of you have a particularly... Competent, intelligent, uh, effective brother, especially older brother. I have one of those. Uh, he's, I think, a little smarter than me. He's much more motivated than me. He's, uh, you know, sort of the perfect son, firstborn guy, you know. And, uh, this, as I think of that relationship and my uh, relatively timid place between the two of us, I think, oh, with Christ, it's that infinitely more. And because my brother is a good guy, he's not ashamed to call me his brother even at times when, really, you know, (laughs) it's a little bit embarrassing for him. But if I think about myself in relation to Christ, I think, oh, we are off of that chart. Our older brother Christ is perfect man in every possible respect and not embarrassed by me. Wow, <laughs> what, what, a, what a ridiculous privilege. Just, wow. Uh, this is one of the reasons I love the book of Hebrews is because it has this, this whole, through permeating through the whole thing is, don't you realize how good you have it in Christ? Don't you see? Don't you see? And for me, this moment where he says... <laughs> For this reason, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. To me, that's like, that just nails me every time I think about it. But, so what are we in the church? We're brothers. We're we're not associates. We're not colleagues. We're brothers. And I think... When the Bible refers to us as brothers, by the way, that is the most common word in the New Testament 
that is used to refer to Christians. Brothers. And, you know, we, would, we need to be generous in our translation. Brothers and sisters. I think it's kind of cool that in uh, Papimento there's only one word for that. <laughs> Whether it's a brother or a sister. <laughs> doesn't matter. Uh, but <clears throat> we are siblings in a family. And I think that's not just a figure of speech. You know, I, I, no one has to tell me that my natural brothers are my brothers. But you also are my brothers, and not just figuratively speaking. It's an actual family. Now, so far, we've really just been kind of reviewing stuff we already said last time. Uh, and last time we also took a little detour into, well, if we're a family, what, what's a good family look like? So we actually reviewed the research, if you will, uh, in the social sciences about how effective families behave, which honestly for me was a fascinating thing to look at because it's so, the, I mean, all these secular social scientists figure out stuff that I don't expect them to figure out about effective families. So <clears throat> there's basically three things. How would you define a successful family? And I wanted to refer to John 4, 9, 1 John 4.19 here. We love because he loved us first. And uh, so we noticed three connections. And I'm just summarizing now from last, the lesson from last time. How would you identify or define a successful family? Here's how I would define it. A successful family is developing strong connections that build individuals in their confidence and skill to develop strong connections. So in a family, the family, people grow by, by having strong connections. They grow in their ability to form strong connections. So they're not limited to their family unit. This was a very interesting thing in the science to me was really effective families are good at making people who function well outside the house and form good connections outside. And I think, well, that makes perfect sense. I mean, the ultimate expression of this is you raise kids who can marry and raise kids and do it well. So, um, <clears throat> now, uh, so we're developing strong connections that build individuals in their confidence and skill to develop strong connections. And the science notices this functions in three directions. And the way this is summarized in at least one of these, you know, scholastic frameworks is they develop connections up in and out. And good families are strong in all three areas. Good families, families that develop these strong connections and build people who can develop strong connections, <clears throat> have a spiritual life. 
Well, that shouldn't surprise any of us. It surprises me that social scientists are willing to say that, but uh, that makes perfect sense. If I know John, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he loved us first. Uh, so we uh, built these, these, the first connection is a connection up, a spiritual life, a moral framework that's grounded in something besides a utilitarian outlook that what's right is what produces the most good feelings and reduces the bad ones. That's utilitarianism in a nutshell. So, a <clears throat> uh, uh, moral framework that's grounded in some concept of God, relationship to him, a responsibility to God. And then uh, a successful family develops strong connections in, and then a successful family develops strong connections outside the family. And so I've just framed that in biblical terms here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And I better remember 1 John 4, 19 at this point. So that love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength doesn't become a burdensome law, but an active opportunity for a relationship with my Father God. Who loved me first. The only reason I love him is because he already loved me. And uh, so, and that's demonstrated by the cross of Christ and actually communicated by the ministry of the Spirit in my soul directly. The Spirit of God testifies that we are sons of God. Or or Romans 5. Uh, the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the giving of the Spirit. <laughs> Do you realize what a privileged position you have? To be in the family of God. And we love one another. Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And those are, that's, up out, that's up in and out. So... <clears throat> That's the review. If we take this seriously in our life together as a church, what difference does it make? If we say, no, we're not just the family of God in our, you know, we have a certain feeling when we go to church. I think there's probably a lot of churches where people have a sort of family feeling about their church. Well, that's because it is a family. (laughs) Even if we're not very intentional about it, that's something that's kind of true about families, isn't it? They They aren't necessarily very intentional about it. It just is. But what if we are? What if we notice this and take it seriously? So I've just identified some ways I think this should change things. I think it might change our approach to evangelism and church growth. I know my pastor at Nashville used to say, people would come to me sometimes and when they were thinking about coming to our church and they'd ask, what's our evangelism program? <laughs> yeah, they want, somebody wants us to have an evangelism program. 
His response to that question is, well, you are. <clears throat> I want to take that even a step deeper and say, we, here's, here's our approach to evangelism and church growth. If we understand ourselves to be a family, we exhibit the word. And I'm using the word exhibit on purpose. We exhibit the word in the world. We uh, have an incarnational concept of communicating the gospel. Now, I worry when I say that, that people are all going, oh, that means I don't have to actually say anything about it. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course, you don't have to, you get to. And if it's good news to you, then we won't be able to get you to shut up about it. So uh, we exhibit the word and we see who responds in faith. His sheep hear his voice and follow. So if we put him into the world, a certain group of people who are his sheep will go, oh, there it is, and they'll follow. We invite our friends over to the house a lot. <laughs> Just like if you had a great family, your kids are inviting their friends to your house a lot. Because they don't particularly like going to their friends' houses, so they want their friends to come to their house. So we invite our friends over to the house a lot. So we kind of want it to be a good house. So we work on the house. Now, we don't work on the house as some sort of programmed thing. It's a natural motivated thing. If I invited my friends over, I come home and I say, hey, my friends are coming over. And we all look around to see if there's anything we need to fix. And then we know this, anyone, and this is kind of unique about this particular family, anyone could be adopted into our family at any time. Who is not in charge of when someone new is adopted into this family. The children are not in charge of that. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in charge of when a new member of the family will be adopted into it. So, whoever you meet, whatever kind of character they are or have, could be adopted into our family at any moment. Oh, <laughs> now I could go out in the world and go, wow, I hope they don't adopt that guy. And of course, someone could have looked at me in exactly that same frame of mind. So that's a bit selfish or worse. So we want it to be a strong enough family to welcome and include anyone. Now, now, when I get to that second part of the sentence, I'm talking about our local fellowship church, right? 
We want this fellowship of Christians to be strong enough that anyone in Bonaire could be adopted into the family of God and come to church here. And we could handle it. Man, we got to pray about that, don't we? And what I mean by strong enough is I mean strong enough in the assurance of faith. We're not concerned about how we're strong enough that we don't need to be concerned about how that guy might distract us from Jesus. Because his character is off in some particular way. So one, one of the things this tells you about our approach to evangelism and church growth is it, it's going to be about how good of a church we are among ourselves as much as it is about how good we are at reaching out into the community. So <clears throat> we exhibit the word in our behavior and especially our love for each other and in our speech we find out who responds. That person is adopted into the family. There, now that's my brother. Whatever kind of flaky character he happens to be. Well, that leads to this problem. How do we, how does it change our approach to spiritual growth or development? And, you know, like me as a Christian, how do I grow? And the thing we might want to notice is this, if we are noticing that the church is a family, that this is about the fellowship, that our approach to spiritual growth should be fellowship-based. It's personal. It's not a program. That's a very important expression. It's personal. It's not a program. We might develop some programs Great, as long as, we, as long as the program always serves the personal and not the other way around. And it's very easy to sort of get addicted to your programs. So, got to be careful. It's up, in, and out, and in that order. It's fellowship-based. It builds and multiplies relationships by engaging in relationships. That's why a meeting like this is, is so good. We're, what we're mostly doing is spending time together, getting to know each other, talking about what's happening in our lives. We're, a lot of accidental advice is passed. By the way, accidental advice is the best kind. So, uh, yeah, it's a fellowship-based thing. It's about knowing God's love and reflecting God's love in Christ by the Spirit. Um, it's an opportunity, not an imposition. By that I mean it's gospel, not law. Your spiritual development is not something you have to do. And, you know, when I say that, I think, well, of course it's not. How stupid that we th sometimes respond to it that way. As though it's some kind of burdensome duty. 
to grow spiritually. (laughs) I mean, come on now. That's crazy, isn't it? If you have an opportunity to be stronger in your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by the ministry of the Spirit and the Word in your life, if you can do that, well, for heaven's sakes, why wouldn't you? It's pure benefit. But we are still struggling with the flesh, so we are still like resistant to our own benefit in many respects. But it's an opportunity, not an imposition. When I was a child, I had to memorize the Bible. My parents made me do it. I don't mean to say I memorized the whole Bible, portions of the Bible. (laughs) So I had to do it. Well, I was a little child, little children, you know, you're going to have to say, yeah, uh, sorry, you have to. One day you'll know how good it was that you did. And even though you don't like doing it now, we're going to make you do it. So there's room for some of that in the church. But (laughs) I also want to teach the child the reason you have to do it is because it's so good for you. And I will tell you now, I think the most powerful thing in my own spiritual development is that my parents made me memorize scripture when I was a child. So family, okay, there's some things, but, in, but ultimately this is opportunity, not rule. Gospel, not law. And especially with grown-ups. But if someone's new, we're going to be a little more directive. Well, here's what you need to do. Uh, but mostly what we want is to be engaged personally in relationship. That's how people learn to be engaged in relationship. Hmm. Then last thing I want to say is it's not measured in terms of knowledge and obedience. I want to say that in the modern evangelical community of Christians, uh, and I'm using the word evangelical in the American way as a sort of broad spectrum of conservative, Bible-believing, gospel-focused Christians. Uh, We have a very, very strong tendency to measure a person's spiritual maturity by how much theology they know and how well they behave themselves. And I want you to know that both of those things can be faked and often are. Well, they're not faked, but they're not necessarily signs of great maturity. There's another component that's more important, and it's this relationship component. A person can know a lot of theology and be an immature Christian. A person can be a very good law keeper and not really much of a Christian. Uh, So we need to uh, 
expand our concept of what it, maturity looks like to mean something like effectiveness in, in fellowship. Now, I want to, whenever I say that, I also am afraid that people are going to go, oh, good, so I don't need to know anything about what the Bible says. I don't need to study all those deep theological concepts. Or I don't need to worry about whether I'm being obedient to God or not. No. No, we can't say that because <clears throat> the, the fellowship that we're striving in and after is served by those things. The more, I, I mean, the more I understand theology, the more I understand this relationship that I'm in with God and with you and with the world. And the more I strive to be obedient, I mean, the law now tells me how to love. It gives me the details on what, what love my neighbor as myself means. So I need these things, but I also need to know they're not <laughs> the goal in and of themselves. They're good in that they serve love, that they serve fellowship. So just like you wouldn't say of a family, it's effective if everyone in it, you know, scores well on their college entrance exams. Well, it's, they've clearly been effective in at least one area. But suppose that kid is a psychopath, but he gets a perfect score on his ACT. Well, I wouldn't call that effective. So there's more to it. That might serve the greater cause. Well, and in this case, does serve it. That's why the central feature in our worship service is the preaching of the Word. But the preaching of the Word has another objective which is we grow in these, in, we grow in the relationship with God, with each other, and with the community in which we live. We, and we grow more confident and more skilled in building those relationships. So, uh, it changes our approach to evangelism and growth, it changes our approach to our individual spiritual development, it changes our approach to serving in the church. Now, on this third thing, I'd say all of the above applies. So, first of all, you read that rest of that whole list, it's fellowship-based. How do you serve in the church? How do you serve in the church? You develop deeper fellowship with people in the church. That's the definition of success. I'm closer, these people are more important to me, I am more involved with them and them with me. We have a growing bond in Christ. Uh, we help each other, we operate as a family. If you have a need and I have the resource, I share it. There's, we, we grow in fellowship. Uh, and so serving in the church is anything I might do that 
contributes to that. Now, that means we all have a, we have a positive expectation that everyone has a place of contribution in the family. Families, even with tiny kids, will develop a place for that child where that child is contributing to the relationship of the family. Uh, we honor the character and preferences of each family member. <laughs> we don't expect, uh, you know, our, our, our little brother here, there are certain things we don't expect him to do because he's no good at them. And maybe he could become good at them, and if we think so, we'll help him. Uh, but if not, we'll give him something else to do. Uh, you can see this in a, in a natural family sitting around the dinner table, yeah? And what they talk about. And what each one of them talks about. Which one of them doesn't say much, and which one of them is the family entertainer. Uh, which, uh, my, my younger brother, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, my younger brother was always the last one to finish his meal because he couldn't shut up and eat. He did a lot of the talking around the table. You know, so we, we're each an individual person. We have our particular personalities, our particular gifts, talents, skills, abilities, inclinations, interests, uh, and we're all different. So a good family honors that, respects that, finds a role that fits it for each of us. Okay, well, this is reminiscent, of course, of what the scripture says about even the spiritual gifts. You know, I don't, I expect some people to be good at this and some people to be good at that. And if they were all the same, that would be an odd body. Body of entire, entirely composed of eyes. They're, they could see real clearly, but they can't go anywhere. Well, so we honor that. And the focus is on strengthening and extending fellowship. Strengthening and extending fellowship. We become one because we become brothers and more and more. And we, as we become one, we also develop a, a, a focus out that says, that's looking around for who is out here that should be in here. Who is out here that will be in here if we just tell them? <laughs> so now we're back to the first item. I think also this changes our approach to unity in the church, or the unity of the church. The scripture uh, proposes unity as an already existing fact. Not, a, not something we have to make, but it is something we have to focus attention on to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's in Ephesians chapter 4, I think. But uh, 
I think the proper focus for the unity of the church is within the fellowship of the local church. That's, I'm just giving you my opinion. That's the proper focus. So if we build the unity of our church, I think we will find ourselves some mysteriously way, that was a bad sentence, some, in some mysterious fashion, more unified to all the other churches if we focus on building it among ourselves because it's personal relationship-based. <clears throat> so different local churches can be different, just like different families are. So if I think, okay, well, this is the family of God, there's only one of those, but there's an extended family and there's an immediate family. So I'm really in a family with my brother and I'm also in a family with my cousins. But they live in a different place, in a different, you know, circle. So we want to focus locally. And it's fine with me if another family isn't just like ours. I think, wow, there's families that are like families of college professors, you know, they're super intellectuals. And there's families that are, well, like Rick's family, they race cars. They build and race race cars. It's very hands-on. Um, that, those, those two families aren't the same, are they? Well, which one's better? There's emotional families. They just go nuts hugging each other all the time. Ugh. They're sappy. They're sappy families. You've met some of these, I'm sure. Is there anything wrong with that? No. In fact, us, you know, cold-hearted families really should go to their house every now and then and get a hug. <laughs> There's... So there's emotional, there's intellectual, there's all different kinds. There's adventure families. We meet them here in Bonaire because they come through here on their sailboats. What kind of a nut puts his family on a sailboat and lives there? Well, at that, then I think, wow, what if I grew up in a family like that? That would have been so cool. And so we give liberty among churches to develop their personalities according to who God collects in any given spot. There's a lot of freedom in recognizing the church is a family. There's a lot of, there, we, that means we can give each other freedom right within this church because we're, we're brothers. That doesn't mean we're all identical twins. So you can be who you are. And our house is built for us, but mi casa es su casa. <laughs> so we're building a house here. Anyone can come. Anyone can come. 
to me, this is a very liberating concept to really take seriously. What if the church is a family? And it, can, it changes a lot of... It's not necessarily going to change exactly what we end up doing, but it's going to change how we think of what we're doing in important and helpful ways. And hopefully orient us in a more uh, biblical direction. Okay. I'm done. Anyone got a question, comment, discussion? Um, I just, I, I think this can be extended all around the world. When I traveled, the first place I go was the local church. And I remember I was in British Columbia about 10 years ago, and I showed up at the local church, they invited me out for, for lunch, and I made an instant family. Yeah. Um, I was in Cuba a few years ago with the church instant family. Right. It's amazing, and it's, it's, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Right. Not even those non-Christians, if you want to have community, like, like this girl that was office elbow there, I said, come to church, she did, and she developed a family here. Right. You know, she's not more family. Yeah. Um, but it's a welcoming um, place. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've had that experience as well, wherever people I can't even talk to. And I enjoy meeting them. And there's a sort of immediate bond in the spirit, I think. Um, what John was talking about, she's not born again. Or oh, she or he, I don't know who she was. Are they part of the family? Well, I think they're like someone we've invited over to the house. So they experience the family life, even though they are not yet part of the family, and enjoy it, and can see it. Dick, you were trying to say something. Well, right, yeah. Should. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. And that relates to what John said about the community aspect, right? Like that, because uh, I think of a family as sort of a slightly deeper understanding of the idea of community. Uh, it's a stronger community or an element of community. Uh, and so, yeah, the, those folks who are in the family of God, well, we have that place to care for when they can't care for themselves. And so if someone is senior, you know, gets to that point of life or for whatever other reason. Um, we're accepting of people who have particular challenges. So someone might have issues with mental illness. Well, they're in the family. Do you have a brother that has a mental illness? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I, so that might change how I take care of them or relate to them, but it doesn't change whether I will. Yeah. There's a wide range of gifts, abilities, strengths, weaknesses. Do we butt heads with our brothers and sisters more than anyone else? There's an acceptance. Right. Right. That's right. I butt heads with my brother, but if you do, you better watch out. (laughs) Yeah, because even when he's a total idiot, he's still my brother. Are, do we have total idiots in the church? Here's what we have. Only total idiots. I have this card in my, on my table at the house. It's a card from a church in Nashville. Not mine, but a different church. Here's the, and this was like the slogan for this church. I'm a total idiot. That's item number one. I'm a total idiot. Uh, The second point was, my life is settled. It didn't say it exactly like that way, but it said something like that. My future is assured. That was item number two. Item number three is, anyone can get in on this. think, man, that's a great slogan, isn't it? We're all total idiots. But in Christ, totally secure idiots, totally accepted, totally assured futures, beneficent, beautiful futures. And this is available for anyone. Now, if I notice I'm in a family, I think, well, yeah, I, I like my idiocy more than I like yours. <laughs> yours bothers me. <laughs> Mine bothers me a little less. Sometimes it bothers me a lot, but okay. But we're still brothers. Good. Sorry? Well, right, and I think of it sort of like this. Yeah, if he's not a believer, then I'm, there's a very real respect in which I'm closer to you than I am to him. My brothers, I think, are both believers. We're as much brothers as any natural brothers. Because we're adopted... That relationship, we have to, it has to be built. You know, it's not like I instantaneously feel that way about everybody.
That's what I was thinking that, that just about my experience at, at work. I have one used to reflect about all the people that show up at work and everybody does their best. Even the behavior we call ourselves family and we get along probably better than sometimes we get along with inside our four walls. Mm-hmm. You know, so I really like and appreciate the sense about maturing the relationship because uh, it, it seems like unless, unless we're able to actually uh, not pass each other in the hallway and say, how are you doing? Okay, good. It's not really how are you doing? Mm-hmm. Long enough so that I can truly get to know who you are and what's going right. on in that. Even then, yeah, and I think so much of that is the passage of time in each other's presence. Like it's accidental. And when it's really happening well, it's almost accidental. It's because we're actually around each other. And so one of the things that we ought to think about as a church is how to be around each other. Uh, and not with any great necessary program, but uh, just the program of being together. Uh, or one of the best ways to do that is something we're working on together, you know, where we have sort of a common project. So for me, like the church work day is one of the best cases of this. Because I really start to know these other folks when we're both working on pulling up the tree stump, you know. Yeah. Let me pray. Father, thanks for uh, this chance to get together. We're so grateful for that, Lord, and we recognize the value of just being present with each other. We pray, Father, that... uh, that uh, we'll all get past this disease so that uh, we can experience that more like we're supposed to. Father, thank you for each of these men and their friendship and brotherhood in the body of Christ. Lord, we pray that uh, we will grow in this respect and grow together and Uh, experience these things in the life of our church in every way. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.